baseball spring forward or fall back? The NBA media community says goodbye to a beloved colleague, and we speak with the chair of the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee for Arizona, Dr. Christina Wilson. Welcome to Upon Further Review, your bi-monthly snapshot on COVID in the world of sports. I'm Ty Henry. And I'm Matt Zemek. Matt, we got some interesting news today, starting with the Arizona Cactus League the 15 Major League Baseball teams that are part of the Cactus League have been sent a letter from the Arizona Cactus League asking to postpone spring training because of COVID-19. Dateline from Mike Oz from Yahoo. It's an article. Will Major League Baseball start on time in 2021? That's one of the big questions surrounding the game now that we're on a month out from normal spring training report dates. Arizona Cactus League, home to 15 Major League Baseball teams and home to one of the highest infection rates in the country, sent a letter to Major League Baseball with support from local mayors and city managers asking that spring training be delayed this year as the COVID-19 pandemic still rages in Arizona. To be clear, Cactus League itself has no say over uh, over when MLB decides to start spring training, but the Cactus League and its host cities are trying to present a unified opinion that they don't believe spring training would be safe in, in February. Matt, you know and I know, you know better than I, having lived in the Valley most of your life, how much this, the Cactus League means to the state of Arizona. For them to put out this letter, things must be really serious. They must have some serious concerns because this will have a big impact on the coffers. Yeah, huge. And, you know, it just it just reinforces the point that, uh, you know, can, can our society, can its various uh, institutions and, and major cultural pillars such as baseball and such as spring training in Arizona uh, also, Florida, you know, can can we go for a short time without the things that we've come to depend on, that we've come to enjoy? Can we deal with short term pain or is even short term pain too much for us to both emotionally and economically handle? And, you know, given that Arizona is one of the worst spots, not just in the United States, but in the world for COVID-19 and given the lack of covid relief you know state and local aid it just seems that we're in a position where the responsible thing is indeed to delay spring training because we need a covid relief package we need state and local aid to flow to arizona and all the other states in this country and that only then does it make a lot more sense uh, to go forward with spring training uh, and that we shouldn't have these large gatherings of people with a lot of travel, uh, you know, to uh, one general metropolitan area uh, in Phoenix and that we, you know, we should in fact try to buy time or at least to not commence certain activities, you know, until we know that state and local aid will be flowing in to, uh, relieve the burden on various communities to support, you know, and those, those players are going to need to eat somewhere. You know, they're going to need to sleep somewhere. They're going to need uh, various things to be provided for them. Uh, that doesn't just, you know, magically appear. People do work to provide those things. Right. So, 
we all need to be in a better position to be able to facilitate that. And I would I would make the the additional point that, you know, while there is a 2021 Major League Baseball schedule on the books that, you know, flexibility is important in a pandemic. And with regard to baseball, you know, there is no magical uh, rule or law uh, or, or, or decree which says that, wow, you know, we have to have that opening day on Thursday, April 1st. You know, if we start in the season in May, uh, instead of April, you know, if we push spring training back one month, you know, that's not a crisis. That is a, that is an inconvenience. And we need to distinguish between the two things. And if the season does get pushed back a month, you know, we'll play a bunch of seven inning double headers on Sundays. I mean, and that was one of the good things about the 2020 season is that uh, fitting in these seven inning double headers, you know, you're not pl- asking major league players to play at 18 innings in a, in a day, you know, on, on a regular basis, you're asking them to play 14 innings on, you know, a semi-regular basis. So if we, if we uh, pushed back the season by a game, you know, there would just be spread out double headers, maybe let's say once every two weeks. And what that would have the added effect of doing is that you would be playing, uh, you know, a, a series against a team uh, in a compressed amount of time so that you're, this might lead to fewer plane flights uh, between and among cities. In other words, you wouldn't just fly into a city for a single makeup game the way you normally do in baseball. You know, when you have a rain out early in the season, you fly in for a Monday afternoon makeup game later in the year. No, we can just uh, reshape the, the schedule now and just build in some scattered double headers. Uh, instead of thinking we have to start the regular season April 1st, which means we have to start spring training games at the very end of February, the very beginning of March. So there's, there's still the ability uh, to be flexible here. And uh, again, without state and local aid, it doesn't seem wise uh, with horrible COVID numbers in Arizona to just ram this thing through right away. And the numbers are $168 million in travel and tourism that the various communities are expecting an influx in for uh, annually uh, due to Cactus League. Moving on to the Arizona women's basketball team, they are having COVID issues. They are have to they have to postpone two games this weekend. Ryan Kellepire from the Arizona basketball Arizona Desert Swarm. Uh, COVID-19 issues have halted two more Arizona women's basketball games as the program announced late Tuesday night that it's road games versus UFC and number five UCLA on Friday and Sunday respectively have been postponed indefinitely. This comes just two days after the Sunday's home game versus Colorado was postponed due to COVID-19 issues within the U of A program. Uh, The University of San Francisco is now on pause. Their men's basketball program is on pause. And so we're seeing that right now in terms of the winter, the, 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 the lagging indicators of the winter issues uh, starting to bring brought to bear and having a bit of a tipping point in college sports over the past three or four weeks, particularly basketball. Absolutely. And I would add that, uh, you know, what we're one thing the Pac-12 is dealing with, not just Arizona women's basketball, but um, there's been a COVID-19 problem with Oregon and Oregon and UCLA. We're going to play twice in a five day span. UCLA and Oregon, we're going to play 
you know, at the end, and when you when you li- I'm talking to our uh, listeners here. When you listen to this podcast, um, you know this this uh, episode will already have occurred. But as we record this podcast, you UCLA and Oregon were were scheduled to play a game Thursday, January 28th, and then they were going to play again on Monday, February 1st, after Oregon played USC on Saturday. January 30th and, you know because there are no fans allowed in games it really doesn't matter that uh, Oregon would play two games in Poly Pavilion in Westwood I mean there are no fans so it's not as though UCLA gets a crowd advantage so they were going to have Oregon play UCLA twice in five days so now both of those games uh, have been postponed and need to be made up so you know just to tie this into the Arizona women's basketball and also the University of San Francisco men's basketball, it's all part of the same dynamic. And, and the solution is to not have conference tournaments this year. And it, it just does not make sense to have the logistical undertaking of a tournament, bringing all your conference members uh, into one spot over a few days. Uh, and also I should add, you know, conference tournaments, those are games played every day, not every other day, but every day. How are you going to figure out the testing problem there? And if you have any COVID uh, positive test, your, your conference tournament is basically done. You're not going to be able to redo it uh, before the NCAA tournament. So it just makes all the sense in the world to scrap conference tournaments throughout college basketball this year the regular season champion or the team that would have otherwise been the number one seed in the conference tournament, that should be the automatic bid holder right there. We just assign the automatic bid to the number one seed, uh, you know, in case there's a tie. And, and then, you know, we just, instead of the PAC 12 tournament or any conference tournament, we just make up games that week. Uh, you know, we, and, and, in, let's just look at the Pac-12 men, for example, because I'm acutely familiar with this uh, problem here. Oregon and UCLA have two games to make up. Now, the obvious uh, time to make up a game in the Pac-12 schedule, I'm not speaking about other conferences, it's just the Pac-12. The, the obvious time to make up a game in the Pac-12 is during that week when you're just playing your rival. So like for uh, UCLA, it would be during the week when UCLA – plays USC on a Saturday. So USC plays UCLA plays USC on Saturday, March 6th. Uh, there are no, there's no weeknight game. Uh, there's no midweek game during that week because it's, because again, the, the conference rivals are playing. So you're not doing a two game trip to, you know, each of the Washington schools or each of the Oregon schools. That's just the USC UCLA week. It's a one game week. So you could make up one game in the middle of that week, probably on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. But UCLA and Oregon need to make up two games. So you're not really going to ask them to play uh, a Tuesday and a Thursday and then uh, have uh, them play, you know, against other opponents on Saturday. That's that's a really heavy lift at the end of the season. It's much easier to just scrap the Pac-12 tournament you would have UCLA and Oregon make up one game on you know Wednesday, March third. Then UCLA and USC play their regularly scheduled game on Saturday, March sixth, and then you would have them come back and play their other. You would have UCLA and Oregon come back and make up their second game on Tuesday, March 9th or Wednesday, March tenth, and then there's no Pac-12 tournament over the weekend. 
So those teams are fresh for the NCAA tournament. They can then also, you know, uh, quarantine and uh, just observe healthy practices before the NCAA tournament and the trip to Indianapolis. So it, it really seems uh, on a logistical level like an increasingly easy call to scrap conference tournaments, make up your games that week in a spread out fashion. It just seems like the obvious solution throughout college basketball. Moving to the NBA, uh, some sad news. A colleague, Siku Smith, a long-term NBA reporter and television analyst, died Tuesday after a battle with COVID-19. For those of you who uh, may not know the name, you've probably seen him on NBA TV alongside Stephen A. Smith, not Stephen A. Smith, but uh, uh, Steve Smith and Isaiah Thomas from time to time um, talking about uh, some of the games that were going on. You may not have recognized him, but he's a longtime uh, NBA reporter, native of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Smith went to college at Jackson State in Mississippi before starting his career at the Clarion Ledger in Jackson. He went on to become a fixture in the NBA universe, first as a beat reporter covering the Indiana Pacers for the Indianapolis Star and the Atlanta Hawks for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution before joining Turner Sports in 2009. This from Tim Bontemps of ESPN. So uh, the sports media community impacted directly uh, here with COVID-19, Matt, with Siku Smith passing away after a long battle. He's the same age as me, and it's sort of jarring here. It's very jarring, and uh, you know, prayers to to him and his family. And I, and I don't, I, I don't have a lot to say here. It's just, it's very simply, Ty. It's a reminder of how real this thing is, and that you know, if there's if there's anybody who you know still doubts, you know, the the necessity to to practice, you know, considerable degrees of vigilance, you know, whenever whenever it hits really close to home. You know, hopefully that's an eye opening moment for people so that, you know, they exhibit increased vigilance in their lives if they haven't been exhibiting vigilance to this point. And, you know, we can talk about the inadequacy of the government's response locally and federally, which is absolutely true. But nevertheless, you know, it, it is best if we all do our very best, you know, ourselves to exhibit a maximum of vigilance because you never know when this is going to hit really close to home. And I'd like to end on some good news here, uh, a positive story from Joe Davidson of the Sacramento Bee. We just had our first sporting events sanctioned by this California Interscholastic Federation occur this year. Uh, it was a cross-country event. And a couple of experts or excerpts here. The first high school sporting event sanctioned by the California Interscholastic Federation to take place within the Sacramento region in 10 months happened in El Dorado County, a cross-country meet between four programs. Cross-country is now allowed in the state's most restrictive color tier purple, and runners were mentally in the starting position of the race since they had found out two days earlier that this event would in fact happen. Never mind, uh, here's, here's a good quote here uh, that just shows you how people were chomping at the bit and how much joy just comes from a small event, right, Matt? Uh, the expressions on the runners uh, said said as such with a sense that it wasn't important who won the races. It was important that the student-athletes had a chance to compete, to be in official uniforms, to be teammates. This race was a reward for months of conditioning and stop-and-start uncertainty if press sports would ever get off the ground this academic year. Parents representing each school sat in their own sections in the stands, socially distanced. Everyone had masks. Some mothers and fathers spoke of relief and joy of watching their child in an actual event. They took time off from work to see this. Some spoke that the mental toll on their teenagers was concerning, that activity and sense of normalcy 
uh, was needed. Uh, one mother said, I'm so excited to see this that I could just cry. Um, and she was in a rush and didn't give her name. I can't chat now. I just I, I, I want to watch her go. Uh, and to give a shout out to the two winners, Ava Meyer of Oak Ridge won the girls race and Coleman Tobin of El Dorado won the varsity race of uh, the boys varsity race and um, cross country outdoors. It was snowing. People were distanced. And I think the athletes did have some sort of mask on. So this is sort of striking a balance here, but uh, good human interest story and good for the people of that community. Very much so. And I think the appropriate thing to say here, Ty, is that when we talk about mental health among young people and mental health in athletics at the high school and collegiate level, you know, the, the, the mental health of, you know, risks or mental health problems associated with not being able to play the sport that you love, not being able to pursue an athletic career, you know, the, 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 the more a, a young person's athletic identity is attached to, you know, rising in a structure, you know, and being able to play big time college football or a revenue sport, uh, you know, to make it financially and escape poverty in some instances, you know, the more that opportunity is denied, the more severe the mental health outcome is, is generally going to be. But when sports is just about the, the sheer joy of physical activity, the fun of participation, in an activity when it, when it's reduced to that level and reduced, I'm saying just like the pressure is being reduced, not the value being reduced. But when, when sports are simplified and it's just about, you know, the, the, the joy of doing something and there aren't these external economic or social pressures, then, you know, that's a, that's a situation in which mental health, holistic well-being can flourish. And I think that's a very important takeaway from this story. Welcome back to Upon Further Review. Joining us now is a pediatric sports medicine specialist whose research has been published in several peer-reviewed journals. She's an orthopedic surgeon at Phoenix Children's Hospital, who also serves currently as the chairperson on the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee for the Arizona Interscholastic Association. She's Dr. Christina Wilson, and she's our first medical expert to join us on our podcast. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Wilson. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Give us a general uh, overview of the general mission and role with sports governing boards. I was looking at the National Federation of High Schools, and is this something that people who are part of that charter have to have as a sports medicine advisory committee? And this, the follow-up question to that is, give us an idea of what, you, what your general mission was uh, in a general sense in a pre-pandemic world and how that has changed over the past 10 months or so, particularly your workload. Yeah, so uh, most of the states who have an uh, interscholastic association that governs their sports usually has a sports medicine advisory committee that is associated with it. Uh, Arizona has a very active sports medicine advisory committee. Every state is a little bit different on how they structure that. We've been very active working with our interscholastic association for about the last 12 years or so. 
they have been very receptive to recommendations that we've made. And how ours is structured here in the state of Arizona is that we are not a governing body, meaning that we do not make any uh, legislation. We're simply an advisory committee to the executive board. So the executive board of the Arizona Interscholastic Association is who makes all the governing decisions. We, uh, from a health and safety standpoint for student athletes, make recommendations that we feel are in their best interest. And so uh, we have worked very collaboratively for the last several years, as I mentioned, with our executive board. Most of the time, they're very receptive to our recommendations. Occasionally, for certain reasons that they have, they have chosen not necessarily to all of our recommendations. Most of the time we find a consensus of where we feel that there is still uh, attention played to the health and safety of athletes, but there is, it may not be everything that we had recommended. Um, when we look at uh, sort of where we were at kind of before the pandemic, I actually just stepped in as the chair actually in July. I was appointed the chair. Our previous chair is actually a pediatric neurologist whose focus is really in head injury, um, but he did a fantastic job over the last 10 years of really guiding our sports medicine advisory committee on multiple health and safety issues and really creating a lot of really great policies that protect our athletes here in Arizona. He really felt like it was a natural transition time. I've worked with him collaboratively as a member of the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee for about the last six years. And so he felt that this was a real a good natural transition point with my background in public health. I also have my master's in public health. Um, and I'm actually a primary care sports medicine physician, so I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, but I do work in the Department of Orthopedics at our local children's hospital. And so it just was a, a kind of a good transition point. When we first started, um, you know, looking at what we were planning on doing this year as I took over as the chair of the SMAC, we really wanted to focus on mental health. Uh, that was an area that we had sort of dabbled in a little bit with our sports medicine advisory committee and really felt like it was an important area that we needed to focus on and look at things. We had done a really great job of doing head injury and concussion, doing heat-related illness work, doing work with uh, sudden cardiac death, and kind of those big um, areas and then emergency action plans were kind of our four target areas. We really felt like there was a fifth that was missing with just mental health. And so that's where we started a lot of our work. And then, of course, uh, things got uh, very uh, not a great place in the state of Arizona with just uh, numbers of COVID and the pandemic throughout the summer. And so a lot of our work shifted to focusing on uh, mitigation measures that we could put in place to, try to have a fall season with football and badminton, volleyball, all of our fall sports. And so that's where a lot of our work um, has been. And of course, we've still kind of tried to focus on that mental health piece. Um, we have obviously been very aware that our athletes have had significant increases in, in mental health uh, issues with anxiety, depression, uh, with being at home and not being able to interact with their peers in a school environment, and then also not being able to go to practice. And so that's been one of the key things of us trying to drive how we can safely get these kids at practice and interacting with each other uh, to have some of that social network that's very important to them. Christina, piggybacking off that point in particular, you know, you're trying to get these athletes 
to deal with this season here and now and, and you know the, the the very real prospect of not having to play in the here and now but mental health obviously also involves principles that that young people can incorporate into their lives for the long term trying to teach them bigger lessons or or give them you know tools resources that they can use when they grow into adults. So there's a there's the short-term piece of dealing with what's immediate and immediately around them. And then there's the long-term piece of giving them stability, things that they can use when they become adults, when they become uh, parents, you know, in the future. How have you tried to balance short-term needs versus long-term principles in this process? That's a great question. Uh, I think that's always the challenge that we have. Um, I think one of the biggest things, sort of what you're alluding to with the the long-term health and well-being and and building those things is something that we on the medical side call resilience. Um, and I think it's 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 always been a focus, especially in youth and and pediatric patients, is teaching them how to be resilient. You know, in many ways, it's almost harder in the pre-pandemic world to teach kids who have never faced adversity before in their lives resilience. And so, you know, we kind of try to find the silver linings in the pandemic sometimes. And so I think one of them is this is for many kids the first time that they've ever faced, you know, adversity. You know, when you look at not being able to participate in the sport that they've grown to love many for many athletes. It's not until the first time they ever get a pretty catastrophic injury or, or get hurt. This has been kind of universal across the board, which has been very interesting because when we have one athlete who gets hurt, the rest of the team doesn't understand and can't relate to them. And they really feel isolated. This has been different in that it's everyone who's affected. And so it's kind of been more this group dynamic that we've been able to intervene with those athletes and talk to them about, coping mechanisms and strategies and ways that you can find something else that you can do that you're still passionate about that's, you know, safe in the meantime, or how you can still exercise and really teaching them those life skills of how to adapt, um, which, uh, you know, adaptability is huge in helping to prevent a lot of mental health as an adult. Uh, those are the, some of the strategies that we teach all the time. And so we try to even encourage coaches uh, to be a little bit more flexible and adapt and to teach those kids that, you know, their athletes, those lessons by modeling those things that they're doing. And so that's been one of our big focuses is instead of, you know, giving in to sort of the public outcry and the frustration of things is really teaching the kids through their example how to model what they can do um, long term. Dr. Wilson, piggybacking off of that, it's been well established over, over the course of many decades that sports participation, particularly in the latter teen years, is a mitigator for many pathologies, depression, teen suicide, toxic relationships, teen pregnancy. And they're getting some on you're getting some on the job training here or some real application of uh, you're putting this to the test, as it, as it were, with these athletes who are not able to participate at the level they expected. So in terms of managing expectations, have you seen what do you what have you observed in terms of resilience training with these athletes in practice uh, over the course of the short sample size that you've been able to uh, gather information on? 
and preliminary findings as, as to how they're resilient and how they're being able to kind of forestall some of these pathologies and some of these uh, mitigating factors? I think many of us have been really impressed with actually how resilient kids are. Um, I don't necessarily think that they're, you know, victimizing the situation. I think that they oftentimes just, you know, when we listen to them and hear them and what they're going through, them being able to talk through those things, I think really has helped. Um, I think that they've been much more flexible with sort of things that are going on. Um, Obviously, they've been just as frustrated when things have gone back and forth about you can play now or it's going to be another, you know, two weeks before we're going to let you play or we're waiting for these things to come down or we're going to now have a mask mandate we're going to give to you. But the the thing that we've heard numerous of our kids say is, you know, they just want to play and they're like, we're willing to do anything. We're willing to change, you know, how we do things. We're willing to have less you know, contact time at practice, we're willing to train outside. Um, obviously, we live in Arizona and Central Arizona is very warm um, in the summer. And we had football teams that were like, we'll do, we'll move the weight room outside, you know, and the kids were like, we'll do this. And so it's been really interesting to see that the youth population has been much more creative with sort of, well, can we do things this way or can we do things that way? Um, and, and I think that that's been reassuring to see. I think that kids really have some natural resilience. It's just um, us kind of taking a step back as the adults and trying not to project sort of our frustrations and feelings on them and letting them, you know, celebrate in those successes or those things that they find that they can do. Um, and how, and we've listened to them on suggestions of how we might be able to do things differently that we're still protecting, you know, their family and their community and their health and well-being, but allowing them to do what they want to do, which has been the resounding comment back to us, we just want to play. Um, and so finding ways that we can do that, they've been just as, as creative and probably more creative in some respects of, of ways and be willing to do things um, that others have, you know, have just, it's been more of a frustration and just fighting back where the kids are like, that's Okay. Um, you know, we obviously instituted a mask mandate about a week and a half ago, and some of our teams had already been practicing masks in anticipation of that. And many of the kids have said, you know, what, it's uncomfortable and it's not what I would like to be doing, but it's not that bad. Um, and so that's what we've heard from most of the kids, whereas the parents are like, oh, this is, un- you know, unsafe and not healthy. And the kids are like, we're fine. Um, and so it's just very interesting to see, see those differences and and, you know, encouraging those kids to have, you know, maintain that same perspective and those resilient behaviors throughout the rest of their life. And we've been trying to do that through modeling through their adult mentors, which for many of them are their coaches and their athletic trainers in that medical community. Christina, what's been your experience of how you've been working with various high schools? And when I say various, I'm talking about, you know, the kind of the income level of the student body and and the the level of development in the given area like you know brophy and chaparral are very different from south mountain and other other schools have you been having to work at schools in in more economically depressed areas or is your advisory role kind of like a forty thousand feet where you know you're trying to just implement some consistent standards what what has been your experience in terms of how you spread around your your consultation and and your input. 
Yes. Yeah, so that's kind of the two roles of my life. So the, my role is that with, with the work that we do with the sports medicine advisory committee is really to implement standards that can be implemented across all of our member high schools. And so, you know, there are almost 300 member high schools and some of them are, as you mentioned, are in very metropolitan areas, very affluent areas and other of our schools around the reservation um, or in very remote areas of the state that don't have a lot of access to resources. And that's been one of the true challenges from the committee and that 40,000 you know, uh, foot perspective is how do we make suggestions and, and require mitigation measures that can be universally applied because the AIA is really serves as a level playing field for all athletes. You know, the club world can do what they want to do. They pay to play, but in the AIA world, that's the academic world. We've really got to make sure that this is universally applicable and that we're providing equity in sport, which is another huge thing that we're dealing with in the world right now. And so that has been the true challenge there. We talked about many things. You know, there were many schools that suggested, well, we can test all of our athletes. And I said, that's great. You can test your athletes. But, you know, in some of our more affluent communities and you have access to that and you can get results and, and you know, back before you're playing games. But how are we going to implement that on the reservation where they can't even get people who are symptomatic tested, you know, and get results back quickly? Or in some of our more remote areas where they're, you know, it may be an hour or two hours where they have to drive to a clinic to get tested. Um, or, you know, doing, looking at vaccination as we're able to kind of roll that out, you know, for the later seasons, hopefully the fall or, you know, looking in that pediatric population. Um, and so those things, you know, not even among healthcare workers right now throughout our state, it has not been an equitable distribution of availability for getting vaccinated. And so we're working through all of those things, I think, collaboratively, and that makes it hard. My other role is that obviously I serve as a primary care sports medicine physician at Children's, and we do cover as the medical director several local high schools. And they're across the board. We have schools that are very much in inner city, central Phoenix, um, to Schools that are in much more affluent areas were geographically distributed across, you know, all of Maricopa County. And then we have different size schools too, from 6A all the way down to, you know, 2A. And so we see kind of the gamut of all those things and work directly with those schools. And what I will say is there's definitely been a different approach um, and there are different driving factors for which schools and athletes, you know, and the parent sentiment want to be playing sports and which ones don't or which ones, you know, are very good about implementing all the mitigation measures and, you know, other schools that have been maybe not as rigid about implementing mitigation measures that we've recommended. Um, and it's interesting when we look at many of the inner city schools where those communities have been hit very hard uh, by people being affected and getting very sick uh, from COVID-19, those communities have been much more willing to delay seasons or to even not have a season. Some of them even made the decision to cancel their season, uh, despite the AIA uh, reversing their initial decision to cancel the winter season. Some of those uh, communities still chose to do that. Um, and you know, many of the reservation schools did as well, where they have been impacted much more greatly. And then some of the more metropolitan areas where there's access to a lot of other things or where some of those kids have been in in-person school still, 
um, those schools definitely had a lot more pushback uh, from the public of, you know, continuing to allow their kids to play um, and, you know, letting those kids play. And so it's, it's definitely been a challenge um, with, you know, very different voices throughout the community of, of and how people have been affected very differently from the pandemic and other things that are going on. Dr. Wilson, you brought us straight to where the rubber meets the road, where the science and the medical community meets what Tip O'Neill used to say is all politics is local, right? All, all cooperation and all compliance with these protocols and the pandemic is also local. So we've, you're, you've obviously, as a medical professional, you've all been learning on the fly. You've been collaborating with colleagues in the region and around the country to come up with protocols and benchmarks. The high school football season was delayed for a few weeks, uh, as I understand it, and you reached a few benchmarks that you needed to. Uh, take us through that process and and also the process of where you how you got to the the original place where you were, where you gave the recommendation not to play winter sports and how the benchmarks began to change in in the region and also in the state. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, when we looked at, so our sports medicine advisory committee is a committee of about 25 people uh, that are all vested in sports in some manner in the state. So we represent all of the uh, healthcare systems throughout the state. So all the major hospital systems, we also represent all, uh, all levels of sport. So we have professional representation from almost all of our professional teams we also have collegiate representation from all of the collegiate schools throughout the state. Um, and then we also have multidisciplinary members. So we've got a chiropractor, we have a naturopath, we have a PA, we have a psychologist. Um, and that is the, the opportunity that really provides us the opportunity to really kind of look at things uh, from a multifocal lens. And so that's what we have spent a lot of time doing over the last uh, several months. Um, you know, we really started doing a lot of our work of looking at when is it safe to resume sports? You know, are there metrics that we can use? Is there data that we can use? Rather than just picking this, you know, time out of the sky of being like, this date looks good. Let's go with this date. Um, and so that's where we started a lot of our work over, I would say, even late spring, early summer. Um, and what we decided to do is when the state kind of adopted metrics, uh, which we were very relieved to see, we felt like what we recommend with us being involved with school sports, um, particularly the public school sports, is having consistency in those recommendations. So we took the metrics that were established by the state and adapted those to what made sense kind of from a sports perspective. Um, of looking at what are the strategies that can be done in sport to reduce the spread of COVID-19. So looking at, you know, spacing athletes six feet apart, wearing masks when they're participating or when they're not participating, having more activities outdoors versus indoors, um, and looking at what kind of point we felt like with the rate of community spread, it was safe to kind of move from one step to the next step meaning moving from lower risk activities and sports to higher risk activities and sports. We knew the big challenge in the fall, obviously, was going to be football. It's a, con it's a collision sport, um, and there's a lot of close contact time, particularly for those athletes that are on the line. And so in that setting, we knew we kind of had to be at a place where 
um, you know, the, the rate of community spread was low enough that we felt like it was weren't going to be spreading a lot from athlete to athlete. So um, we, that was, you know, an area of even when we were working with our executive board, our initial metric for the rate of community spread was less than 100 per um, 100,000 cases in the community. And we have met them sort of in the middle because we were so close to where we wanted to start football um, that we moved that down to 75 for 100,000. Um, and we felt like that wasn't significantly increasing sort of the risk of our athletes. And then we really tracked data over the fall. Um, we didn't actually do it prospectively, which would have been ideal. We just didn't have things all kind of set up and going. So we had just spent a lot of time working on metrics. We all obviously have full-time jobs too. This is a volunteer committee. Um, and so just the logistics of getting something prospective together didn't happen for the fall. So retrospectively, we looked at the fall sports with a survey that we sent to all the member schools, athletic directors, um, and some of them had their head athletic trainers fill that survey out. But we looked at, you know, were there cases of COVID and how many among your student athletes? Um, were there times that you had to cancel practice? How many practices had to be canceled? How many competitions had to be canceled? Um, you know, were there quarantine periods and how long did those last for? And so we use that data actually when we looked moving forward to the winter sports recommendations as well, um, because we knew that when we started football, we had met those metrics we established. Obviously, as the fall season went on, we moved out of that. We had started kind of climbing back up. And then as we hit Thanksgiving and you know, those things, we continued to climb even higher and where we're at now today, post you know New Year's and Christmas. But we, we felt like it was a good marker to know where the metrics that we kind of established in the fall, did they provide some level of, you know, safety for our athletes? And, and we felt like they did. We also asked the schools about all of the mitigation measures that we put in place. And this is why we know that some schools were really good about being very rigid about following those mitigation measures and other schools you know, took them as the recommendations that they were and tried their best, but may not have always hit the mark on all of those. Um, and so we knew that there wasn't 100% compliance with all of those. But when we looked at that, you know, there were some schools that had over 20 athletes who had COVID. We, there were some schools that actually the sports participation sort of interfered with the academics and that those schools had to quarantine because of the number of athletes that kind of had exposed other students at school. Um, and so with that, and with the numbers being so much lower, we didn't feel like we should alter those metrics at all to start the winter sports season. And so our recommendation then as we put forward to the executive board several weeks ago was to not resume winter sports or any sports until we met those metrics that we established late last summer for fall sports, those we meant for every sport across the board. And we felt like based on the data we had from our survey, um, where we had about a 70% response rate from our athletic directors, that that really gave us um, the, the sort of the knowledge to know that it it worked, you know, to a, to a good extent during the fall, but we didn't have room to make those metrics any less, you know, stringent than they were and that we really needed to be back at those numbers before it was going to be safe for us to not be a contributor to what is going on in our state with the pandemic right now, rather than being part of the solution instead. 
All right, you know, in that response, there's a lot going on in that response. And I mean, not in a bad way. It's just, it's very fascinating to see the complexity complexity of the decisions and, and the considerations that you've had to make. And so uh, one particular point I want to focus on, Christina, is that, you know, there, there needs to be obviously some flexibility. And, and you know, we're seeing with COVID nationally, kind of a, a moving target and, a, and an adjusting reality, like the, for, just as an example, the reality of cl- classroom education for kids, like that's been a, an adjusting, changing reality in terms of how safe it's been viewed to be in various localities. So you have a situation where COVID is this constantly evolving thing that you're always trying to learn about, which means that you might have to make adjustments. And yet on the other side, there's always been this need for officials and experts and consultants to provide consistent messaging. So you have this this conflict between the reality of an evolving fluid situation and also the need to provide consistent messaging to the public so that, you know, if if a change is made, you're making sure that the public knows that it's a real adjustment. You know, you're not slacking, you're not cutting corners. No, it's an actual adjustment to the situation. How have you tried to balance those two things, that, that COVID's a moving target, but that you also need to provide consistent messaging that the public can trust? That is the, that's everyone's challenge, I think, with the pandemic. Um, and, and that was really, I think, what played a large part into when we looked at the metrics, you know, we've had athletic trainers in this state who have left their jobs over the past nine months, not because they lost their job, but because they didn't feel like they had the support from their athletic directors, the school community to do their job and to protect their athletes, which is what their job is. And so what we really felt was very important is that, you know, we obviously we agree that this, we don't know a lot about some of the things with COVID. We don't have great data to show that with high school sports participation, it's contributing with this many cases or, you know, these athletes are going home and then they're getting family members sick and those family members may be using hospital resources or other things. We don't have good hard data, which is really one of the criticisms of the medical community right now, but it's because this is new and so what we felt was important is that when we, what we've been trying to do in our state is have very state specific data. And so moving forward into the winter, we actually have a prospective study that is ongoing that is that every COVID case that happens in an athlete, we have now mandated from our executive board that those cases have a, have a survey that the, the athletic director or the athletic trainer has to fill out to basically let us know in real time what is going on so that we can start to kind of look at that problem that we're dealing with to balance it better. Uh, Are we being over restrictive, not letting our students participate in things that we should, or are we doing exactly what we should be doing or are we not doing enough? And so that was really the challenge. And one of the things, you know, as you, heard, it was very complex sort of our process. We didn't go into this very lightly. We'd actually tabled this decision uh, for about three weeks so that all of us could sort of gather a little bit more data and we could also um, sort of see what the numbers were going to do in Arizona before we made an official decision. And so we didn't actually meet until the day before the executive board made their decision several weeks ago. Um, and, And one of those 
you know, when we look at those things, we very much wanted to make sure that the messaging we're giving the community is consistent. So when we looked at this data from the fall, we found that what we did was what needed to be done at that time. And so we felt that our metrics were actually pretty accurate for where community transmission, hospital utilization needs to be in order for us to have a safe environment for our student athletes to be participating and for them to not, you know, be spreading COVID amongst each other, taking it home to their families, or for those kids who are in school, taking it to other kids who are also in school um, because they have to be because it's, they're in an in-person environment and then them bringing it home to their parents. Um, and so we felt that our metrics from that we established in the summer hadn't that, that nothing new come about that made those metrics where we could make them any more lax than they were. And so we stood by those to really, in many ways, maintain that consistency because we felt like we were somewhat successful in the fall and that if we made the metrics um, any less, that we wouldn't be as successful, particularly with, you know, how, how prevalent COVID is in our communities right now. That does it for this episode of Upon Further Review. And until next time, learn more, share more, think more, care more.